0: Would you join with me in prayer? Gracious God, we praise you and humbly thank you this morning for all your gifts so freely given to us, for life and health and safety, for the power we have to do our work, leisure to rest, and for all that is beautiful in your creation and in human life, the things we've enjoyed this weekend, sunshine, friends, food, family, laughter. But above all, Lord, we praise you for our Saviour Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection, and for the gift of your Holy Spirit, and the hope of sharing in your glory. We pray, Lord, today that you would fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing in him. Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Lord, as we start our new services today, we are mindful of your word to us. Unless you build this service, unless you watch over it, all our labor is in vain. So God, we commit these new endeavors to you in prayer. We depend on you. Go before us, Lord. We pray that you would build your church here at 8.45, at 10.30 and at 6. That you would watch over each service and your spirit would be at work so that all our labour and service would not be in vain, but would bear fruit for your kingdom and the gospel. Keep us prayerful as a church, casting all our cares on you and committing our plans to you because you care for us. Thank you, God, that you care for 845, this little local gathering here of saints, ordinary sinful people who've been forgiven and transformed in Jesus to be your servants in this place and at this time knit us together as a body of believers over the coming weeks and bring growth of new life in each of us and in this service. Lord, we want to lift up to you today those among us who are unwell or struggling in various ways and also for whom this time of change and transition in our church might be difficult. Lord, be near them, draw near to them um, and help each of us to be attentive to one another in this time and to seek ways to love and to support each other through this first month. Please bless and grow the fellowship of life groups, morning tea time and other events where we gather across services. We pray in particular for Stuart and the staff team and for lay leaders in crucial areas uh, of overseeing the logistics and also for partners and kids teachers serving extra at this time. Please sustain them through the intensity of the first weeks and build a great vision through their labor and a great ministry. Lord, we want to pray this morning for those in our community who care for children and others who need care, for parents who are at home during the week to care for young children and for those who have committed time to care for elderly, sick or disabled family members or friends. We know, Lord, that this care work is some of the hardest work and can sometimes continue for many years without obvious thanks, progress or rewards. Lord, we thank you so much for those who care. And for the vital work they do in the body of Christ and in our families and communities. We know, Lord, that you desire all of us to care for others. Uh, You, Lord, who are not above washing your disciples' feet. And I pray, Lord, that you will show each of us where you would have us um, serve others in this way and at this time in our lives. And help us, Lord, we pray, to be creative in fitting in our obligations to care for others uh, in need, around our own economic needs and the other good work we're doing and other good ministry. Lord, we pray the same for our compassionate works of mercy and justice outside our immediate circle of care. Lord, help us again not to see these um, this care and compassion as optional extras, but as integral to living out your gospel. And Lord, as we continue to think about compassion, we pray for the upcoming trip uh, with compassion um, that some New Life people are going on at the end of the year. We thank you for this opportunity and for those who've made sacrifices of time and money to attend that. We pray that planning will come together for this and that it will be a great opportunity for them to grow deeper in their faith and reliance on you and in their understanding of the work of compassion and IJM in the Philippines. We pray that they'll be able to bring back what they learned to educate and challenge us here in our compassion for our distant neighbours. We ask all these things in the name of your son. Amen.
1: Good morning. The Bible reading this morning is from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16 and we're reading from verse 1, page 283 in the chair Bibles and large print 401. 1 Samuel 16 where Saul anoints David. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate." But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen any of these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. The Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Thanks, Stuart. Great to have that reading in front of us. So we're going to be looking at those two passages. We're looking at one Samuel 13 and one Samuel uh, uh, 16, as we just saw there. So that's where we're going to be today as we start a brand new series on the person and life of King David. It's going to be a great term. I'm really looking forward to it, and uh, I'm going to um, I'm going to I'm going to speak uh, across this term with uh, with our other preachers. Under this heading, we're going to try and be uh, pointing you to be pursuing God's heart. Pursuing God's heart. Seeking what it is that God wants for us. And we do that particularly as we look at King David uh, today and across this term, because that's how David's life was summarised for us. If you have a look uh, in Acts, uh, writing uh, a thousand years after David, Paul records these words. He says, After removing Saul, that was the king before David, He made David their king, talking about God. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So what do I hope for you across this term? I hope that you get a passion for pursuing the heart of God and that together we get excited about doing everything that God would have for us to do. So how about I pray for us as we start this series and ask for God's, God's help. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that your son David set a great example for us. Father, we know that he was flawed and fallen in so many ways, and yet he has this wonderful epitaph recorded in Scripture of being a man after your heart. Please help each of us this morning and across this term to be growing in our desire to pursue your heart. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Alright, so here we are, we're going to start a brand new series, and uh, it's important to find some context for David and for Saul. So how does it fit in? I've got this uh, overview I do of the Bible, uh, where we kind of have the Old Testament in pictures up there, and then the New Testament after it. So we start there in creation, Uh, we see Israel is formed as a nation when God makes a covenant and promises with a man called Abraham. We then see that little nation grow in captivity in Egypt until a man called Moses, who you'll definitely have heard of, uh, says, let my people go. That's right. And then we can do Pharaoh, Pharaoh, and all those sorts of things. If you've grown up around church, you may have a little song to sing at that point. Uh, Moses has a 2 I C. a guy called Joshua, who's with him. And eventually, after uh, receiving the Ten Commandments and wandering around the promise, uh, in the desert, Sorry, they come to the Promised Land. And in the Promised Land... After Joshua's death, God appoints a series of judges to rule over them. Judges is kind of, um, it's not like people in our court system that have a wig on and that sort of thing. They're people who were ad hoc leaders of Israel, appointed for the task. And so we have people like Samson and Eli and then Samuel who will appear in our story. And after that period of judges, Samuel moves us to a period where we have kings ruling in Israel. And so we're going to start with King Saul and then look at David, who will be the focus of our term. But today's message will focus on a guy called Saul. So when we come to talking about this, uh, this part of, uh, of the Bible, for quite a long time, the Bible, so the Bible makes a big deal out of David. King David, his name is mentioned 1,033 times in the Bible you have there in the Old Testament. It's mentioned 59 times in the New Testament. David is absolutely central to what's happening in the Bible. He wrote half of the book of Psalms. There's 150 Psalms. He wrote 75 of them. So David, really important. Okay, And this really is the high point for Israel. But what's happened is in archaeology, people have gone, yeah, right, so this is really important. But did the Bible just make it up? Because it's hard to find any evidence until recently. And recently, in fact, just this week, I think it was Simeon who sent me a link to this, uh, just this week in Israel, uh, on this hill here, at a place called Tel Eton, uh, they've uncovered a military fortress. If you're in Israel, and Stu's just back, who just did a Bible reading, Stu's just back, there'll be rubble everywhere, won't there, Stu, from thousands and thousands of years of occupying that place. But what they found on this hill was this military fortress. And it's built in such a way that they went, this is a really dominant position. It's holding this area here. And when they did some radiocarbon dating, they they found out that it's just after the reign of David. And what they're thinking is this was put in place by David to help consolidate his rule over all of Israel. So there's one piece of evidence. They also found this wonderful stone, uh, which is called the David Stone, uh, it's actually from an Assyrian king, basically saying how he beaten all the other kings around. So it's a bit of a boasting stone, okay? And what happened was, in this stone, this little bit that you can just see here says, and I also defeated da-da-da-da of the house of David. How many Davids are there kicking around a thousand years before Jesus? Precisely, no others, So the house of David, here we have in stone from the enemies of Israel, a recording of the reality of David. Isn't that amazing? So you have some archaeology that will say David existed. I've got an overview of the series that I did, uh, which is quite uh, large. Uh, If you read your newsletter, you can download your own copy. It's very exciting. I like it a lot. Um, On it is down here a timeline, which will be more readable than the one you can see up there. And what it has on it, if you download your own copy, is you can find out where the sermons fit in the life of King David. So if we zoom this in a little bit, here's David's life. Uh, We're looking at our first sermon here, number one. David is roughly about 15 years old, and we're about 1025 BC, just to give you the vibe. Is that okay? So this is where we are. This is orientating the book that we have here. So that means David's story, the stuff we're reading about today, happened 3,000 years ago. Seems like it's a long time. Can it be relevant for us today? Well, I'm going to try and prove that uh, this morning. Having a king in Israel was not a new idea. They didn't just invent it and say, hey, Saul, you're our guy. God had actually told them that a king would come and rule. And so we see in Deuteronomy, one of the books that Moses wrote way before time of David. We see this says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. So God had actually told his people, eventually when you make it into the promised land, kings are going to be a thing and you'll need to be careful how you appoint them. So a chosen king was part of God's plan for Israel. But we see that the people of Israel aren't so good at following instructions, and so they appoint a king, but not in the most helpful way. In 1 Samuel 8, we hear this part of the story. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, who was the judge at that time, at Ramah. They said to him, you are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us. Such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. So God had planned for them to have a king, but the way they were going about it was in such a way that choosing a king equaled rejecting God as their king. They decided, We just want to be like all the other nations. And God said, Well, actually, you're different from all the other nations. In fact, that's the reason you exist, to be a light to the nations. And you now just want to be exactly the same as them. Choosing a king meant rejecting God as their king. But nonetheless, they chose one. They picked this guy called Saul. And uh, we're still filling in his backstory. So, how did Saul start? Well, Saul was chosen after he went on a little donkey finding expedition. Seriously. If you haven't done done the story, you need to go and read up. It's really good fun. Uh, He goes looking for donkeys, and eventually his servant said, Look, we've been out looking for donkeys so long. Soon your father will stop wondering about the donkeys and start wondering about you. Along the way, he meets Samuel, and Samuel anoints him because God says, This man is the man I've chosen to be king. And so Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler? Over his inheritance, It's a really important thing to get here. Anointing or pouring oil on is the mark of being chosen to be the king. And so Samuel installs Saul as king, but nobody else knows. It's a little private discussion. Eventually, they get all the nation together, and they're going to reveal the king, and they do it by drawing lots. And so this tribe's chosen, and then this family, and then this man, and then they look for him, and they can't find him. Saul is hiding. And so it says this, they ran and brought him out and he stood among the people as a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There was no one like him among all the people. Well, there's no one like him for two reasons. He's anointed with oil and he's hiding away from, uh, from taking responsibility. So they literally pull him out from where all the supplies are stacked and say, here's your king. And everyone looks at him and goes, whoa. He's a head taller. Now, I'm glad that that's not how the Lord chooses. No, I mean, uh, uh, so he's a head taller than, than uh, than all the people. So what do we notice about Saul as he starts? He's anointed, he's reluctant, but he's also notable. People look at him immediately and go, that's the sort of bloke we should have as a king. Excellent. Let's get underway with this whole king thing. And so they get started. Well, how does this little section here speak to us? The way that kings are chosen? Well, two things, I think often we strive to have leaders save us i i'm a bit at that point with australia at the moment to be honest i I look at i look at our nation i go could we have a leader could we have somebody who wants to point us in some direction take us forward with some intent now this is not a political statement i think they're all i know i need to be careful how i say it i lack a great deal of conviction about the usefulness of our leaders if i can say that okay when we, when we, what can happen though, in an absence of leadership, we can be so obsessed with leadership that we think they can solve all of our problems, right? And so we go, just give me a leader and everything will be okay. And the, the message here from, from Israel is, they decided, God can't help us, we need a bloke we can see to follow. Do you see how that works? So we're just wandering around here, give me somebody tangible, God, I can't see God, so give me someone tangible, And so all I'd say to you, as I say to myself, is as we seek leadership, seek leadership under God, not in place of God. Does that make sense? The second challenge I think here is to seek to lead under God. So when you get responsibility, do you see yourself, if you're in a position of leadership, as the saviour of whatever place, body, organisation you're leading? Or do you see your leadership as entrusted authority under the true authority who is God? Can you see how this should keep us humble? And so we should seek our leaders under God, and we should seek to lead under God. Saul, it says, was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. All I want to note here is that's a long reign, isn't it? He actually reigns for 42 years. Now, we're going to get past Saul pretty quickly, and we're going to spend a lot of time looking at King David, who incidentally reigns for 40 years, but I just want you to note here Saul isn't just a footnote in the history of Israel. He actually reigns over them for 42 years. And I I thought that was worth pointing out. Okay, now he has some notable successes and failures as a leader. Does anyone know what this sign means? Sorry? Bears. Bears are around. And uh, if there's a bear and it's sleeping, the most important thing that you need to do is don't poke the bear. Yes? Yes? If there's a bear and it's sleeping, the most important thing you need to do is don't poke the bear. I want to show you an incident where Saul decided to poke the bear. Let's look at uh, 1 Samuel 13, 3-7. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul's attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines, who was the, they were the bear, assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth When the Israelites saw that the situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. But Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. How did this work out for them? Not very well. The major power around Israel on the coast was the Philistines. And all of a sudden, Saul's son attacks an outpost. And what do they do? They go, This is not okay. We're going to come and crush you. The Israelite response is boldly to hide in ditches and caves. They ran away, quaking with fear. Now, Saul has an army with him, and he's thinking about what they should do, and timing is going to be the critical thing. Now, it's the critical thing when it comes to pies in the microwave too, isn't it? No, no one knows this. Come on, come on. What happens when you undercook the pie? Oh my goodness, it's warm on the outside, and by the time you get there, there's icicles in the middle. That is very unsatisfactory, and if you overdo it, it turns into this sloppy thing that just collapses all over your... Anyway. None of you have microwave pies, obviously, but it's very important. Timing is critical. I want you to see timing was critical for Saul, uh, for, um, for Saul too. He'd been told to wait for Samuel to come. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But when Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter, so he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. Hey! It wasn't a very good thing. It's worth thinking about, why did Saul not wait for Samuel? Saul acted because he felt that not yet equaled never. So Samuel hasn't come yet, it's not yet, and not yet means he'll never come. You ever have a feeling like this? He felt alone. I'm standing here and no one's supporting me. And then he felt weak and getting weaker. The guys were running away from him. He gathered an army and now they're starting to leave. He felt obedience seemed foolish, keep waiting. Obeying seems foolish, and more than that, disobedience didn't look so bad. What's the big deal? Now, do we know any of these pressures? When we're trying to be obedient to God, we feel alone. Obedience seems foolish, we're getting weak, we're worried, and disobedience doesn't look so bad. I want to ask you this morning, will we go with facts or with our feelings? When it felt like Samuel wasn't going to come, was that true? It wasn't true. But it felt so overwhelming that he felt compelled to act. And when he, when he meets Samuel, he activates his inner lawyer. Do you know your inner lawyer? It's the one that excuses all the things that you do wrong. He says, it's the men's fault. They're running away. He says, it's Samuel's fault. You didn't come early enough for me. It's the Philistines' fault. They've got this big army and I felt compelled to act. It's easy to point to others and not own our own wrongdoing, isn't it? He was wrong and it would cost him everything, but his finger points everywhere but himself. This is the major turning point in in Saul's life. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over all Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Isn't this stunning? There's a huge cost to impatience and disobedience. There's a huge cost. And it means for Saul that he will lose the kingdom, that God will find someone who's after his heart, who loves obedience. But I reckon a bunch of you are saying, why was it such a big deal, right? What did he do? He offered a sacrifice, he didn't wait for Samuel to come. No biggie, right? Have you heard of the separation between church and state? Have you heard of that? Some people make a big deal about this. it's a real thing, particularly in the life of Israel. And it wouldn't be called church and state, just so we're clear. But there's, there's categories of jobs in Israel. There's a prophet and there's a priest, and they do God's business. There's also someone who rules as king, and that is God's job, but it's to be separated from this prophet and priest. The king is not to be the prophet and the priest. And what he has done in offering this sacrifice is to break down the distinction. All of a sudden, we have a man who is saying, I am the king, I am the priest, I'm in charge of all things under God in Israel. Can you see how that's such a big deal? He's consolidating power to himself. Now, he does it because he's afraid, but it's a mortal error. Because in God's economy, to truly be God's king, you must sit under the sound of his voice. It must be possible for the king to be reproved by a prophet, for him to need to seek in the person of a priest his forgiveness. And so here we have grievously Saul claiming all of that for himself. Can you see why that's such a big deal? We'll see later on that God needs prophets to speak to kings because kings aren't always right. So how does this speak to us? Well, it's funny, isn't it? We've been told to wait for a Someone to come? Who are we waiting for who's yet to come? The return of our Lord Jesus, isn't it? And as we wait, do we feel foolish? Can there be times when obedience feels like it's just not the smart option, where disobedience seems the logical thing, where we feel we're getting weaker, where we're under pressure, as we wait for our King to come? He said, be ready, I will return at any time. And I think the challenge for us is to think, we'll just make a little compromise here. We'll just disobey here. We'll just slide this one away. And all the time, activating our inner lawyer to justify what we do. Will we wait well for our king to come? It's so easy to look at, uh, look at Saul, isn't it? And to say, gee, if only you'd been smarter, you only need to wait five more minutes. He would have been Okay. Keep waiting for your saviour to come. At any rate, Saul reigns after this, after he's been told that he'll lose the kingdom. And we're told that, uh, that Samuel watches, uh, watches Saul. And it says, uh, all the days of Saul's life, there was bitter war with the Philistines. Whenever Saul saw a mighty man or a brave man, he took him into his service. And he, he is a man who has fights and battles on every front, basically. He pushes back on all of his enemies. And we come to a particular point where he's been told to wipe out the Amalekites, uh, to, uh, to, to defeat this enemy and to not keep any of the plunder. But he decides to keep the plunder. He started down the path of disobedience and he continues it in this situation. And Samuel says to him, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Here's a man who thought, I'm going to keep some of the plunder against God's plan, and I'm going to turn it into a sacrifice. And Samuel says to him, say, mate, don't do that. God's not interested in your sacrifice. He's much more interested in your obedience. And it's just another hammer, in the, another nail, sorry, in the coffin of, uh, of his ministry. And, uh, and, and Samuel is heartbroken. He's in mourning over the case of Saul because I think he really liked him. I think he really liked him. And we're actually told that, uh, that Samuel said, I'm not going to see you again all the days of your life. And he mourned for the passing of the kingship from Samuel. The Lord, then the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. It's a fair call, isn't it? What are you doing? I'm going to go and anoint another king while there is a king ruling. How will the king think about this? No problems. Samuel is worried he's going to be killed if he's obedient to God. But guess what he does? He goes anyway. He goes anyway. Now, do you like this car? Pretty nice, hey? No, not nice. Okay, good. When you get one, send it my way. It'll be all right. It's a supercar, right? Great-looking car on the outside. Imagine if it had inside it a VW engine. Okay, it'd be reliable. Yeah, okay, good, all right. But it wouldn't go, right? There'd be a big mess, mismatch between the impressive, intimidating outside and the reliable, but not very interesting, interior, Right? It'd be underpowered. It would be... It probably would hardly move a car that big. I want you to see God looks not just at the outward appearance, but the inside. Uh, if you come with me to chapter 16, we see in verses 6 to 7, one of these most important passages uh, in the New Testament. When they arrived, Samuel said to Eliab... Uh, Samuel saw Eliab and thought... So, so this is where he's arrived to anoint the new king. Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height <laughs> for I have rejected him the lord does not look at the things people look at people look at the outward appearance but the lord looks at the heart the lord looks at the heart was was uh, was samuel about to make the same mistake here's a big tall bloke he'll be the king we see that god's standard is different to the standard of this world and he looks far beyond the superficial to the heart what happens next is a hit parade uh, they kind of all the other sons of Jesse kind of parade uh, in front. I can't get this image out of my head when I hear this story, but right. Okay, so all the, all the other sons walk in front of him. And basically, God says, Nup, 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 until we get to the point where he says, uh, Are these all the sons that you had? They look very impressive. They're a great bunch. Do you have any other sons? Because God hasn't told me anything yet. And he says, Oh, yeah, there's another one. He's out in the field uh, looking after the sheep. Go get him. We're not going to eat until he comes in. Comes in. And God says, yup, this bloke, he's my man. And so he anoints him, anoints him. The man David is a shepherd. He's been doing an apprenticeship with Jesus in the fields. Jesus wasn't there, by the way. He's hanging out with God in the fields. He's a shepherd. He's been learning his trade. He's anointed with oil by Samuel. So he's a new king. And it also says that he is empowered By the presence of the Holy Spirit. We'll see it in verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel went on to Ramah. So what we have now is a big tension in our story. We have two anointed people. We have Saul and we have David. And as we unfold this story, you're going to see that tension will drive the whole account of David's life how should this speak to us? How should this ancient 3,000-year-old story speak to us? Well, I want to ask you, if God is more interested in the inside than the outside, if the Lord looks at the heart, not at the things that people look at, are you king ready? Are you king ready? Are you someone, if God was looking only at the heart, would be chosen for responsibility because you have treasured, you have sought, you have pursued the living God. Are you king ready? And secondly, because most of us will not be, do you know the forgiveness that's often in Jesus when we fall short? Do you know for those who fall short that there is incredible forgiveness, that God will restore and empower you? Are you king ready? Maybe not. Will you know the forgiveness and will you seek with renewed heart the living God? Yes, that has to be our passion this term. I want to finish on this wonderful note. In Ephesians, in the New Testament, thousand years later, the Apostle Paul writes this, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. See, the Holy Spirit came upon David. But you, brothers and sisters, have a promise better than David. The Holy Spirit will dwell in the hearts of all who trust him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful joy of seeing David, a man chosen because he was after your own heart, Father, save us from feeling that we do better than Saul and forgive us when we follow his path in fear leading to disobedience. Father, help us to be king-ready because you make us so by the presence of your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's time now to get our Caring Connect cards out. So if you had those cards with you, it would be great if you could get that out. Uh, if you're new with us, We'd love to encourage you after the service to look to someone with a green badge. They're our kind of welcome ambassadors. Uh, That would be great. Or come and chat with me.